There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Justin Brown, a researcher who specializes in wildlife veterinarian and biomedical sciences. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You've probably figured out that this is not the voice of Mark Kenyon. Mark sent me a text last week saying that he was attending a claymation course so he can finally make a stop motion film about his friendship with Spencer. I don't know, man. I got to hand it to Kenyon anyway. He's got a lot of interesting hobbies. Uh, Moving on. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Justin Brown, who currently works at Penn State, where a good percentage of the most interesting deer research comes from. Justin has studied a crazy amount of viruses and pathogens in different game animals and is a huge wealth of knowledge on the anatomy of our favorite game animal. Throughout this episode, we get into a wide variety of topics, but we mostly stick to the ways in which whitetails have adapted and evolved to be able to thrive in so many different environments while avoiding predation. Listen, I promise you, if you see this episode all the way through to the end, you're going to learn a thing or two about whitetails. Justin Brown, I'm stoked to have you on, man. Thank you for having me. So you, uh, I guess, I guess before we get into this, uh, you and I have had a couple conversations and I've had the chance to look through some of your research and I don't think there's anyone out there who studied, uh, you know, random viruses in birds and in big game animals and pathogens. You've kind of, you've kind of covered a wide array of that stuff. Uh, I want to talk to you about that, but first, can you just give the listeners a little bit of your background and how you got into this field that you're in? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so I'm a veterinarian by training. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I got into vet school and, and started to figure out what I wanted to do with my veterinary degree, I always had an interest in wildlife and, and in population health. And so, uh, when it, came time for my senior year and you're going out on various externships trying to figure out what you're going to do with your veterinary degree. I, I went to a, a, a few externships out west um, and worked with wildlife veterinarians in some of the western states and uh, fell in love with the, 
the career. And, and so after vet school, I went on and completed a PhD um, in pathology, which is sort of the study of diseases. And, and, and I specifically looked at diseases of, of wildlife. Uh, and that includes diseases that may be causing, uh, having an, an impact on wildlife or some that may be harbored by wildlife, but having impacts on humans or domestic animals. So um, sort of looking at, at how the health of wildlife is, is linked to domestic animals and humans. And um, so after that, I, I've had a, a couple of different positions. I've, I've worked down at University of Georgia's vet school. They have a, a large wildlife health and disease unit down there. Um, I was the state wildlife veterinarian for Pennsylvania for several years. And currently I'm at uh, Penn State in their department of veterinary and biomedical sciences. And you didn't want to go, even though you went in uh, to, you know, study veterinarian sciences, you, di- you didn't want to go the typical route people would think when you, when you head that way. You didn't, you didn't want to go treat cats and dogs, huh? No, it's probably better off for the, the cats and dogs that I didn't. Um, my interests were elsewhere. Uh, my wife's actually a, a companion animal veterinarian. And I, I think I went into vet school knowing that maybe I wasn't going to go the traditional traditional route. I, I always enjoyed population health a little bit more than, than individual animal health. Um, and, and I've always sort of had a, been a little bit more like a biologist that went to vet school uh, rather than, than a pure veterinarian. So, um, you know, I've always uh, sort of stayed in the realm of, of wildlife health and, and population health. Um, this, this is a total side tangent here, but it, is your wife dealing, dealing with companion animals the way she is, is she totally burned out on telling people how to keep their dogs and cats healthy and them not listening? <laughs> She's probably not uh, happy with how often I volunteer her, you know? Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's a real thing that every veterinarian uh, faces and, and fatigue um, is a real issue in our field. And, and certainly we, uh, I think most veterinarians tend to be quiet when people ask what we do, because it's going to be quickly followed up with either cell phone pictures of animals or, or questions about, uh, issues with their animals at home. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're a, uh, outdoor writer who specializes in deer hunting and you go to a deer show, you see an awful lot of pictures of people posing with their bucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, and, and unfortunately I think I get hit from both angles. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet you do working working at Penn State the way you, that you do. So, what what was the interest though in you know pathology with where did that come from in your life? Just just always curious about it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think with wildlife health, you know, there are, there's a, a variety of ways you could approach that. We certainly have um, instances where we are treating individual animals, um, whether that's for you know a larger purpose like a research study or because um, for that, uh, of an individual animal need. Um, but, but I've always had a fascination with diseases and how they maintain and how they can impact populations and individual animals. Um, and so I've always had an interest in disease ecology. Uh, and so I just linked that together with my interest in, in population health and, and, and wildlife conservation. So that's, that's sort of how I, I, I got into the field. Um, but I think I'm sort of an, an eternal student and I, uh, I think I'm always sort of adapting what I do within the field of wildlife health and disease. Yeah. You seem to, uh, 
you know, we're going to get into, you know, whitetail anatomy and, and their evolution in a, in a little bit here, but your research has covered a crazy amount of different animals, mostly big game animals, a lot of birds, and you, you really seem to have kind of covered the gamut as far as just looking into different species and not really drilling down on one particular species. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, I, I think once you have an interest in, in health and disease, um, I think it's easy to switch systems you're working in. Um, so I started out when I was in vet school working on, on a project on box turtles, and then my PhD was looking more at, at waterfowl, goals, and other avian species. And, um, you know, we've all, I've always had an interest in mammals too. So uh, I, I think it's fairly easy to switch systems. And, and oftentimes, there may be an underlying health issue or disease issue that affects birds, mammals, humans, amphibians, etc. So um, there, there are a lot more links between those different host systems than, than probably people realize. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting field. And it's what's, what was an eye-opener for me is just, just looking at your published research. I'm like, man, I had no idea. Some of these animals I love, like wild turkeys and grouse and obviously whitetails, some of the some of the stuff that's out there that can get them or you know at least infect them and and alter their quality of life like i it was kind of a, a kind of nightmare fuel man it was a little bit of an eye opener yeah yeah and i think you know and we'll talk a lot a lot about this particularly um in regards to anatomy but you know i think whenever we're in the the field of health and disease the approach i always take is is define what normal is so that you can recognize and hopefully respond appropriately to abnormal. And, and when we talk about, you know, viruses, bacteria, parasites, sometimes normal for wildlife is, is even having those things in them, you know? So we can have a wild turkey that has, you know, nematodes in its intestinal tract, and, and that's, not a, that's not a disease issue. They normally harbor those. And so um, when, you, when you start to get into this field, there's a lot of work that can be done simply on identifying and characterizing what, what, what's normally out there, even if it's in the absence of disease. So you find yourself sometimes studying something just, just to recognize what the baseline is for a species before you can move on to some of these outlier infections or something like that? Absolutely. I, I think, I think that is the approach I always take because far too often we identify an abnormal disease or a major disease issue and we don't have that baseline information on what's normal. And so we often jump to conclusions that aren't accurate or we don't know how to interpret data. And, you know, we see that all the time, whether it's, you know, something like SARS-CoV-2 or, you know, the influenza viruses that we're seeing spreading around. You know, a lot of times we don't have that normal data to put those abnormal events into context. Yeah, I mean... It, it- Maybe maybe I'm way off here, and maybe I'm biased because I'm sitting here with COVID right now, uh, with a low level of misery coursing through my body. But it, it sort of it sort of reminds me of this issue with the pandemic of of how vastly different you know the consequences for contracting COVID have been, where you know some people's immune system and and whatever you know contributing factors seem to just handle it really, really well. And other people seem to get really, really hard. So you kind of got to have a baseline there, but it's, that's not a simple thing to come across. Absolutely. No. And, and when we talk about diseases of wildlife, oftentimes the term they use is, is multifactorial. And that just means 
it's not a causal event. So it's not always if you get this pathogen or this bacteria, this virus, you get a disease and it looks like this. You can see a spectrum of signs from no, no clinical signs to fatal infection. And, and a lot of those depend on various factors. And when you're dealing with something like wildlife, a whole host of different things come into to play on how severe a disease will be, whether it's host genetics, habitat they're using, what, how they're exposed and to how much are they exposed? Do they have any underlying diseases? And so, you know, as far as studying disease, there's, there's almost a, uh, a limitless number of questions that we, we have to address before we can really understand what's going on in wildlife. Is there, when you're, you know, when you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I, I need somebody to hand me a sick bird or something. So I have something to study. Is there a, is there sort of a, I don't know how to put this kind of a push. You know, I, I know at Penn state, there's a big deer research research program and a lot of the really cool research studies come out of there. Is there somewhat of a push to study animals like whitetails over some of the less popular animals that aren't, you know, maybe so tied into a, to, to us socially? Absolutely. Yeah. There's always going to be, uh, you know, a, an emphasis or funding that's available for certain species over others. You know, there's a ton of work that needs to be done on non-game species. Uh, and some of that may be because it's hard to get your hands on a forested songbird, you know, and, and, and so that's it. That could be an issue. But other other reasons might just be lack of funding to support some of this research. When you get into some of the disease research it can be really expensive and, and the costs can build up quite quickly. And so, you know, if it's an eagle dying of something, it's, it's fairly easy to get funding for it. If it's a, a turkey vulture, you're, you're probably looking at a smaller pool of funds that you're looking for. And so um, that is something that, that we face um, is, is trying to conduct research on some of these species where, the interest and funding uh, may be lacking. I could see that. I suppose there's probably a a benefit to an animal like a whitetail too, just from the captive servant industry. You can you can get your hands on test subjects. Yeah, and there's it's just very easy to get samples. Now maybe it gets a little harder if you have a specific sample you're targeting, but if you're just saying I just need to go out and get samples, but then you've got you know a whole lot of harvested deer during certain times of year, you can go out and get road kills and sample them. And that's pretty easy. Um, so detection is a major issue. You know, we've done work over the last few years with grouse looking at, at West Nile and some of the, the issues grouse uh, are, are, are facing. Um, and one of the real challenges early on was to find sick and dead birds, because if a grouse dies of a viral infection in the woods, I mean, the chances of you getting your hands on it are, are pretty low to non-existent. Um, and so, yeah, detection and getting samples in hand for some of these species is a real challenge. How do you get your hands on a grouse that died from West Nile then? <laughs> I was hoping you could tell me because the picture here looks like you got a, <laughs> a grouse in a dog's mouth. But um, yeah, I mean, that's something we actually worked at and um, we utilized uh, hunters quite a lot. And so people that were out, um, you know, with their dogs, you know, working their dogs, training their dogs and came upon, you know, carcasses or birds that were, were down and not doing well. Um, you know, those were all uh, options we looked at. 
So that's that's a unique advantage of uh, you know studying something in a game animal. Then you have you have people out there who are going to be gathering samples for you for totally unrelated reasons that you might be able to tap into. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think you know one of the beauties of working with hunters or trappers or or anyone that is is an enthusiast of the outdoors is um, if they're interested, it's really easy to get them involved and excited about a research project. And so, um, you know, we used to go to wild turkey, uh, you know, check stations or or bear check stations, and 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 hunters are always interested in, in hearing about what you're looking for and things like that. So um, it, it it's a nice social component to the disease research. Yeah, there's a, there's a benefit there. Um, can we, can we talk about, uh, one of the research studies that I read that you were a part of, uh, was, was dedicated to looking for, uh, better ways to gather genetic samples from white-tailed deer. Can we talk about that? Sure. What what was the idea behind that? Just, just because of all the disease study and everything, having a, a, a larger, I don't know, I guess pool to draw from and an easier way to get those samples from across the country just makes your job that much easier. We were looking um, in that study at, at, at landscape genetics, so genetics um, in whitetails across parts of Pennsylvania. And so um, you can gain genetic material during certain times of the year and from certain animals like harvested deer. You, could, you can use hair, you can use tissue, anything like that. Um, but what we were starting to look for were ways that we could gather it without having that that carcass in hand or without having a dead animal. Um, and so we were looking at things like oral swabs, um, and, and things like that, where we could sample, um, in, in non-traditional ways. But what, what's the, what's the end goal there or what, what's the bigger picture with those samples? I think whenever you're dealing with something like that and, and you have limitations in wildlife, one of the things at least that I always look for is, you have all these hurdles and limitations to answer some of these questions. Like you can only get deer during this time of year or from, from this type of animal, whether it's a roadkill or something like that. And, and some of those may not be of the highest quality. Um, so some of that research was just trying to expand the tools that we had in our, our arsenal, right? So um, you're not just reliant on finding a dead animal or having someone harvest it. And by having more tools that opens up opportunities to say, we can now sample here. If you can get this, we can use that. Um, and so it just gives us more options in regards to sampling different parts uh, and different different areas and categories of animals. Um, and by doing that, what the, the ultimate goal would be is to expand that sampling to a wider uh, a wider area and, and, and different category of deer. Because if you start to get into how can you sample live animals, then that can address different questions in regards to, to genetics. How, how so? Um, if you had an animal in hand, um, particularly if it was a captive or something like that, you could collect the sample without having to euthanize the animal or without having to do an invasive procedure. And that's, that's uh, obviously something you'd want <laughs> over, over the alternative, but, but where I'm going with this is what, wh- what's the larger picture usage? Like, can you give me an example of like why it would be, why it's beneficial for you to have that wider range of genetic samples? I, in, in that case, it would really depend on, on the question itself. Um, so 
For deer, it's not as complicated because we have our hands on so many of them. But if we're talking about translocating or moving, or if it's a captive and it's moving several different areas, then we can have different samples that are available without having to collect tissue. That makes sense. Yeah, th- that makes sense. Let's let's switch up here and talk about some uh, some of the history of whitetails. And you you're you're a student of their anatomy. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So I teach anatomy uh, here at Penn State, and uh, it's always been one of my favorite subjects to teach. Again, I think it relates back to as a pathologist, one of the tools we use to study disease is, is necropsy, which is an animal autopsy, where we're actually dissecting them and looking for any abnormalities or, or thing, signs of disease or lesions. Um, and in order to do that, again, we have to know what normal is. Um, and so uh, a lot of what we teach in anatomy is what are the different tissues? What do they look like? What do they do? Um, and, and, and part of that comes down to Again, building that library of what normal is, so then you can understand if you if you see abnormal or disease. Give, give me an example of something you've seen really abnormal in a whitetail. You know, I I, I can get, I'll give you even a, a better one. Some some of the normals that people think are abnormal. Um, so deer, as you 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 may know, have um, hemal nodes, which are sort of these little. Um, they're like a lymph node, but they're more related to blood. And so there are these sort of little circular nodular um, structures that are that can be found throughout the body, but oftentimes they're sort of in the ab- abdomen and thorax along sort of it, as you're looking up at the spine in that fat area. Uh-huh. A lot of people think that there are areas of bleeding or hemorrhage, but it's actually just a little normal anatomy uh, of, of deer that we we frequently will have people send us pictures of. So, so when people are field dressing or butchering their deer, they see those and then they think it's, there's something severely wrong with their deer and they want, they want to know what it's got, but it's actually a pretty normal thing. Exactly. They always, a lot of times what we'll hear is it looks like there's areas of hemorrhage along sort of the inner, inner fat in the body cavity. And, and those are just normal hemal nodes. What, what, what is their function? They, uh, they like a lymph node, they're a filtering organ for the blood rather than for lymph. Oh. Uh, give me an example of something in, in a whitetail's anatomy besides that, that, that fascinates you. I think, you know, obviously deer now, now we can see whitetails anywhere, but they've historically obviously evolved to be in forested environments and, and particularly on those forest edges. Um, and so I think what fascinates me about deer is a lot of their musculoskeletal anatomy. Um, so, you know, if we talk about deer as a, specifically whitetails as uh, being really adapted to be for, for running, um, the term we often use for that is cursorial. Um, and so what that just means is a lot of the anatomy and, and, and adaptations we see are built so that they can be really strong runners. Um, and, and obviously any of us that have, have hunted for them or even just watched them can, can appreciate how, how fast and how good they are at running. Um, but some of the things that they've adapted to allow them to do that are, are pretty unique. Um, if you look at deer, and, and this is true almost of any sort of cursorial or running species, a lot of times what they'll do is put 
the heavy part of the lower limbs up towards the body, and then it'll be skinnier the farther you go out on the limb. And that's really true of deer. You know, if you look, a lot of their muscles are on the upper forelimbs or in the rump area, and then they come down and they have really skinny lower lower distal limbs. And, and the reason for that is it lessens the weight down on that lower part of the limb and allows them to just move move that lower limb faster. The other thing they've done is adapted their length of their limb. So if you look at a deer's leg, um, we can talk about different ways animals can stand, right? And so the slowest way an animal can stand is what we call plantigrade, which is what we are, right? Where our heel is completely flat and our whole foot is flat on the ground. When you look at deer, what they've actually done is adapted so they're basically walking on on their tiptoes, right? And so if you actually look at the leg of a deer, they are almost that whole, almost the distal third of their leg is actually their foot that's now adapted so that they're running on their toes, right? So it's significantly lengthened the, 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 the length of their limb and just allows them to run faster. And, and they, and hold on one second. So is that, when, when you describe that, is that just purely for, uh, for them to be really quick or is it, is it for them to go from, you know, stationary to moving fast quickly? Uh, a little bit of both. So, you know, it, what it basically, the, the two ways, the big functions you can, or, or ways you can run faster is if your legs move faster and if each step is longer, mm-hmm. right? And so deer have adapted to have both of those. One, again, they have, they don't have a lot of weight on that lower limb, so it allows them to move it faster. And then as they lengthen that leg for each step, they get to go further. Interesting. I mean, I, th- I think that's one of the things that always kind of surprises people who aren't that familiar with whitetails when you, when they get their hands on one for the first time is how tiny their lower legs are. And, you know, when you watch a deer jump like a six, seven foot fence, it just doesn't seem to add up in our minds. It's a different kind of anatomy. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, it it can look ridiculous when they're walking on like a road, <laughs> yep. but when you actually see them move and run, it, it, it all sort of ties together and makes sense. So is there in, in the, the history of the whitetail, you know, can you, can you go back in time and find an ancestor to them who didn't have, uh, you know, who maybe had stockier, shorter legs? Uh, can we, can we see this, this process playing out in any way? Um, you'd have to go back pre- pretty far far to get at those, but there are some subtle differences, even when you look about, look at like the movement patterns of even something like mule deer relative to whitetails, just in, in the habitat they use. You don't see it as much in the, the anatomy, but you do in sort of the, the way that they move. Whereas whitetails are, are, you know, built for speed, muleys may be a little bit more adapted to, to bouncing around a little bit more in their, their habitat. But are, are their leg, have their legs evolved any differently? Cause I mean, when you, when you watch those mule deer start up the hillside, uh, you know, th- that's a different gait than a whitetail, but it's, is, is there a difference in their anatomy? You, I, you would, you would have to put on your goggles pretty closely to see subtle differences in, in, in regards to their, their musculoskeletal anatomy. Yeah. yeah. Do, do the subspecies of, of deer in North America, do they all share a common ancestor? 
they, well, I, I think there are some, you know, and, and certainly I may not be the best person to speak of that, but I, I think there are some competing theories um, about that. Yeah, some, some people believe they do and some people believe they don't, right? Yeah, yeah. I know there's some some differences on, you know, in in ancestry between like black tails, white tails and muleys as far as uh, how each of those evolved. Yeah, I, mean, I suspect if I guess if you have to go back far enough, you'd you'd figure out where the elk and the and the moose and a couple other species came from too. Exactly. Exactly. What What do you think? <laughs> that gets outside of my expertise. <laughs> I no, nobody cares, man. Just Just take a guess. What What does your What does your gut say? <laughs> um, I I think they share a common ancestor. I do too. All the subspecies. I do too. Are you Are you willing to go on record for that? <laughs> Sure. You know, I'm just, I'm just a wildlife vet. I got nothing to lose. I guess, I guess it really doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. What, what else, what else about their anatomy is, is fascinating to you as far as their, you know, adaptations to their environments? Well, I think whenever you deal with a ruminant, um, that always fascinates me. Um, just how much they can get in, in regards to energy and nutrition out of out of food resources that we can't use as monogastrics. And, and when you say monogastrics, we mean um, species with one stomach. Um, so it's going to be a lot of your mammals. Um, but ruminants have four chambers to their stomach, uh, and it allows them to eat plant matter uh, and things that have cellulose in them, um, which is something, obviously, that monogastrics can't use. If you've seen your dog eat grass and it comes out the other end looking fairly similar, you realize that they're not getting much from that. But when you look at deer or ruminants, um, they have uh, rumen, which allows them to have microbes and bacteria and parasites that allow them to break down that plant matter and, and get resources and nutrients from it, whereas we cannot. And so that's always sort of fascinated me just how, how they've adapted to, to, to take advantage of something that we can yeah, they're they're uh, pretty efficient at at you know bringing the most bioavailability out of out of a wide variety of of food sources. It's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and and there are subtle differences between, um, you know, and maybe even not subtle, but between <coughs> like some of our domestic ruminants and 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 wild ruminants. So if you think of cattle, they're they're considered more of a general grazer. So it just means that they are, you know, obviously, obviously most often eating grass and other, uh, other things in a field, whereas deer, um, are more selective and more browsers where they're actually going through the woods and, and picking off the most nutrient rich parts of the plant. Um, so they're a little bit more selective in, in what they eat. And you can see that in the anatomy a little bit, um, you know, grazers have sort of that wide muzzle, if you think of like a cow, whereas deer have a more narrow muzzle and it allows them to be a little bit more selective and pick off what they want as they're going through the woods. Um, how, how do they study? So uh, this is going to be a weird uh, thing, but I, I got to see, I guess I'm not going to say the company, but I got to see how uh, a company was studying how dairy cows digest different foods one time. And there was like a port right in the side of this cow that they could reach into the various chambers of the stomach and literally take stuff out. Uh, is there anything like that people are doing to whitetails? I've not seen it. There, 
they're called uh, fistulated cattle. And it's basically where they um, make, like you said, a port into their rumen. Um, and then they have sort of a, what looks almost like a cork and they can um, close off that opening to the rumen. Um, I have not seen one for deer, although, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, if they, they did. Um, but no, I, I, I've not seen one. And, and some of it may be that the, the rumen in deer is, is quite a bit smaller than it is in, in cattle. Yeah, it'd be, a, it'd be a little harder to get in there and root around, I would guess. Um, do you think that the average hunter really underestimates the diversity of a whitetail's diet? I think so. And I think they underestimate or, or not even underestimate, but um, I think it would be surprising for them to realize how adaptable it is. Um, you know, we, the, the rumen and the flora in it in, in deer is dynamic. And so it's not like they are getting the same concentrate and same diet as they go through the year with whitetails, their rumen and the, the, the microbes inside of it are adapting as the plants are changing on the landscape, right? And so the rumen can change every, it takes about, you know, two to three weeks, maybe a little longer for those microbes to adapt. And so as the seasons are changing, the rumen flora is adapting so that they can take advantage of the changing plant matter on the, on the landscape. So as it goes from something really lush in the summer to something that may be more fibrous in the winter, their, their rumen content is, is changing to, to allow that adaptation to, to occur. So are, are you saying that their gut microbiome essentially is kind of changing throughout the year to adapt to the, the food sources that are available? Correct. I mean, and it happens slowly and that's where we run into problems um, at times with, with feeding or something like that in the winter because they're adapting to that high fibrous diet and then they're getting a sudden bolus of a real lush concentrated material and, and their, their GI flora doesn't have time to adapt. Right. So is that like when, uh, you know, you, you take a, a wintering herd here, let's say in Minnesota, and it's been, you know, maybe living off a of kind of woody browse or whatever it can find. And then all of a sudden somebody goes and dumps a bunch of corn out there and they've got this, this food source that they haven't had for months and it's full of carbs and not, you know, not what they're, not what they're built for at the moment. And they get really, really sick and some of them die. Yeah, exactly. The disease is called acidosis, um, and, and there's some other diseases you can see with it, um, but 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 it's that same idea. And, and so sometimes we'll get questions of, "Well, I see deer, you know, in my cornfields in the summer, and they're doing fine." And and again, it's because it's it's the 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 speed at which you make that change, right? Yeah. So if in the winter, if they're slowly adapting over months to that fibrous diet, and then they get into a starchy, high concentrate. Is that abrupt change more than it is just solely that, that they're getting into carbs? Yeah. Can I, can I ask you something that I've always thought was bullshit about what hunters say? Yeah. So you, you, and you've heard this a million times, right? Like people will say, oh, I, you know, you shoot a deer down in Iowa, it's that corn fed deer and it's delicious. And when I, you know, I hunt all over, I, I hunt big woods, I hunt out West, I hunt a lot of places where there aren't deer anywhere near cornfields. Right. Mm -hmm. And even when you do shoot a deer that's eaten writing in a cornfield, but you watch them come out there, they're browsing their whole way out there. Does, is, is that BS? Like the, the corn fed idea when you talk about a browser like that? 
I think they can get nutrition in a variety of different landscapes and not just the corn. Um, you know, I think whenever you get that high, that, that big deer, the, you know, really well, <laughs> well nutrition and well muscled, it's always going to be a, a combination of genetics as well as, as nutrition. Um, and so, no, I, I don't think it's exclusive to the, to the, to the corn fields, although that's probably a pretty, uh, a pretty good diet for them there. Well, I mean, they, they definitely use it. I just, <laughs> I, you know, I, I hear people refer to it all the time. Like it's a cow that was, you know, yeah. and it's just, it, you watch them in their natural world and the whitetails are just not living like that. They're not going up to a feed trough and exactly. it's, it's just it seems like they're so much more diverse. And that's, that's one of the things that always amazes me about deer and, you know, and turkeys and kind of everything, you know, trout, ev- everything that you kind of start to look into their stomach after you, you kill them. It's like, man, they've, they're, they're taking advantage of their environment in a way that I think we just totally don't understand for the most part. Oh yeah. No. And, and again, I mean, grouse are probably the perfect for that, right? You know, it's, it's so fun to look through grouse crops. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They've, they, uh, you know, we, we hunt them quite often and so we, but it's a lot of late season stuff. So you, you'd think, you know, like they're on some kind of catkins or something and, you know, Oftentimes they are, but even then, if you, you know, kill one in late December, it's still pretty incredible what they might have in their crop. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I love that. I, I, my, my little girls do too. When you, you know, like when we go fishing, if I, if I keep some fish and open it up, they're always amazed at the bugs and, and, and different things that, uh, that the fish eat. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop 
for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Um, what what else about a whitetail's anatomy? What, besides besides their ability to run really fast and that adaptation, uh, and their ability to eat just about everything that they can come across that they could digest. What what else is there that you just as a as a you know a science person who's just really into them? Like, what is the thing that you're like, man, that's so cool? Yeah, I think their their senses are always are are, are pretty amazing. Again, because they've now adapted let's you know say evolutionarily to be in 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 the the forest and and when they do that there are certain senses that may not function as well you know vision may be poor and and sight may be poor you know sound may be maybe not good in the deep dense wooded forests um and so they've adapted a variety of different senses to allow communication to occur for the vision i think what's really neat is how adept they are at seeing at night and so if you look at sort of the eyes of deer they have a higher proportion of of rods in their retina sort of that that back part of the eye and and what that allows them to do is the rods are the part of the photoreceptor in the eye that allows you to see better uh, at low light um, and they're also really good, rods are also really good at seeing motion, right? And so when you think of like what a deer needs to see at night, to see in dark, to see in, in areas where there's not a lot of light, but also to see motion as a, as a prey species. Um, the other thing that they've done is they have this, this structure in their eye. So if you've ever seen a deer in headlights and they have sort of that reflective part of their eye. Yep. Um, that's actually a structure that is within, it's a membrane in their eye that sort of reflects the light back across their retina. And it allows them to see better at lower levels of light where species like humans cannot. So um, they've got a, some pretty neat things in their eyes to allow them to to see well, even at low light. Why, maybe this is a really, really dumb question, but why why did they adapt to move at night like why are they so adapted to be out there feeding around at night because i know i can't remember what it was but i i read a book on uh tigers that you know mark the the main host of this recommended to me and they were talking about humans evolution and and some of the primates and stuff and how how we were like you know what we're, we're getting up into a tree or we're getting in a cave when night falls because that's when the bad stuff comes out but there's other prey animals that are just that's their time to shine what why is that the case for the whitetail you know and and, and a biologist may may even be better at answering that than me but I, w- I would think that anything anytime they can move without um with, with reduced likelihood of being predated upon they may take advantage of and so if you think about them bedding down during the day and and taking a meal and bedding down and and sort of ruminating and getting their digestion done there moving more at night where visibility is going to be low and again they have those that high level of rods in their eyes so if you do have movement in very dark conditions deer are much more likely to pick that up than than something that doesn't have those structures in their eyes. So I think 
they they have advantages and and it's always going to be the question of what came first the chicken or the egg did they have those evolutionary advantages to move at night um, or did they evolve because they were moving at night uh, do do you think and maybe you know this uh, is is are their eyes better at night than you know some of the predators that they they tend to deal with i mean it, it, you know can a wolf see as good at night as a deer you know, I, I don't know if it can see if one might be better than the other, but I would imagine deer with the structures that we already listed as well as sort of their eyes being um, on either side of their head, allowing them to see almost 310 degrees around them, that they'd be pretty good um, at, at, at out-competing them at night. Yeah, I guess even if they were you know, had, had very similar eyesight capabilities at night. If you can see that range and your, your eyesight has evolved to really pick up movement and react to it, you know, in like microseconds, then that's all you need. I mean, exactly. obviously you're not going to win every time, but it's going to give you an advantage in that, you know, in that space anyway. Exactly. And then you combine that with, you know, their keen sense of smell as well as, as good hearing. I think, They've got a lot to to give them the upper hand at night. Do you, do you think the vision is the most important sense for um, for predator detection? For predator detection, detection, um, you know, I I'm not sure. I think I, I think it's the compilation of all of them, and it really sort of depends on on the environment because you you know certainly when deer look up, you know they've 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 got that good vision, particularly at night. But I mean, I think hearing. You know, when you see them move those those sort of pinna of their ear to sort of triangulate the, those noises that are coming and, and scent, which they have a really good sense of smell, of smell. I mean, I think all of those work together. Yeah, they, they got a few tools in the kit anyway, huh? Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think there's any validity to the argument that they have a sixth sense about detecting predators? Um, I think it might depend on what you're calling that. I mean, you know, they do have um, something called vomerfaction, which is sort of like a mixture of <laughs> of smell and taste. Um, but but I don't know. But I don't think of it as much with predators. More of like deer to deer communication. Hold on, can you explain that? So, have you ever looked at sort of their uh, on the upper part of their oral cavity? They have sort of that little circular structure right where their like dental pad would be. Yep. So in it there, that's, um, they have, um, they have a vomer nasal organ. So right above there, they have a structure that can take in some of these scent chemicals and they can process it. It's sort of, a in their, their nasal cavity area. So if you ever see, um, if you're like a Fleming response where like bucks will sort of curl their lips a little bit when they, they get a scent of a doe. Um, in the rut, what they're doing is actually a response to those chemicals, which is sort of a mixture of taste and smell. So that that's an adaptation that goes beyond just their amazing sense of smell. Yeah, it's it's almost again like a combination of those two, where it's sort of sampling that um, smell and and taste chemical in the in the air. So that like in, in the case of the Fleming response that are, you, you take a doe, she, she walks by, she pees on the ground. He heads over there. He smells it. There's, there are things 
that he can't get out of that just through taking a whiff. He's got to actually kind of hork it through his mouth and, and work it through that. Yeah, he sort of takes it. And what happens is they take it and they sort of get it in their mouth and they, with their tongue, sort of push the chemical up into the nasal organ. Uh, and then that's that's their response off and that curling of the, the lips, um, that response. So let's let's take this back a second then. How how does that tie into their potentially being a sixth sense? <laughs> Possibly that could be the sixth one they're talking about. <laughs> oh, so what I meant by that is hunters will often say, you know, I never moved, I never I never did yeah. anything, and that buck looked up at me. And people say this all the time. And we've even had, uh, you know, we've we've had people design suits that were designed to block your electromagnetic signal thinking that, you know, deer might, or, you know, other big game animals might be picking up on that. And it, it's always mixed in with this idea that they've got a sixth sense for detecting us somehow that we don't, that, that's not like that simply explainable biologically. Does that make yeah. sense? It does. I'm not sure I, I, I go that far. <laughs> yeah. You you can say it's bullshit. You're a scientist. <laughs> no. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I, I like ideas like that. Um, I'm just not sure I have the data to support it yet, but I'll, I'll keep looking. Yeah. So you don't believe it. I don't. <laughs> I don't believe it. No. Uh, yeah. I think that we look for excuses sometimes for the fact that we're, you know, 200 pounds and hanging off the side of a tree and that deer knows the entire area he lives in so well that when there's suddenly something there like that, he suddenly, you know, out of his peripheral vision goes, no way. That can't be right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could be just, I smell like coffee. Well, maybe, <laughs> or, it, or it could be just the fact that you're, you know, a full size human hanging off the side of a tree and they're like, nah, I don't, I mean, I, I see deer that, that spook sometimes when they see trail cameras in new spots. And I mean, I, there might be a scent component to that, but when you, when you see a deer react to a little tiny box on the side of a tree, it's not that, it's not that hard for me to believe that sometimes they just pick us out even when we don't move. It, it is amazing what they can pick up on, right? Yeah. Just react to. Yeah, it is. And, and I'm always curious, and this, this is probably probably not entirely true, but I believe it sometimes. So if I get, if, you know, it, this happens to me a lot in Northern Wisconsin for some reason, but if I hang a camera, even if I put it up six, seven feet and I angle it down to kind of get it out of their sight line and uh, just, just be less intrusive, I still get deer that, that spot it. And you can tell, and you know, you might get a series of pictures of them spooking. And if it's a, a specific buck, I often don't get them back there. And I'm always like, is that possible? Like, are they, are they that good at being like, eh, that doesn't belong here. I'm not going to walk in front of it again. Or is that all in my head? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something threw me off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't know. I mean, it, it makes me wonder about their memory. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if, if anybody's ever studied that or not, like how, how they can remember things like that or how good their memory is. Do you know? I, I actually don't. I don't, I'd like to hear it. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of if I've read any studies about memory like that. Can I, can I ask you something different then? Um, yeah. I was, I was reading, this is really dumb. I was reading about, uh, space and, and the gravity of black holes and how gravity can actually influence time. And so it's kind of ties back to like Einstein's theory of relativity. Like 
what, how we perceive time is different than how time is perceived in other places. Or I mean, you know, like other parts of the solar system and other parts of the universe, as far as, you know, how, how much gravity is bending time, I guess it's, and anyway, when I was reading about this, the, the author referenced to, to kind of frame it up said dogs and cats experience time differently than we do. And, it, and, and he put it in terms of like frames per second and dogs actually experience time slower than we do uh, in, in this argument. And that, you know, they, that that's kind of like his ex- explanation was like, it's kind of like, you know, if you watch a snake strike at a dog, a lot of times it's like they're slow motion moving out of the way. They can kind of, they can react really, really well sometimes if they know it's coming. And I always wonder about that with deer and it, it like breaks my brain. I'm not smart enough to actually understand this, but I think about it with like deer jumping the string when you, when you shoot at them or some of the ways they react, I'm like, are they just experiencing time differently than us and just getting out ahead of us and we don't understand it? Well, I, I mean, I think there is, there are, there are some studies and I haven't seen them in deer, but about like fast twitch muscles, you know, like speed and, and quick reaction times and things like that. Um, I, I don't know if they're actually perceiving it slower or are they just moving that much faster? You know, I, I, I wonder, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think definitely even from like a muscle physiology standpoint, um, deer, deer can, can react faster than, than things like humans. Do you know how much faster? No clue. <laughs> are you going to study that? <laughs> that? That might be here. Let me just make a note here. That might be on my list. I got a few things here: the sixth sense and and how fast. <laughs> here, uh, what What is something? What is something anatomy wise or in the whitetail's history that is just a mystery to you that you'd like to figure out? Hmm. You know. I don't know if one of the things that from a health standpoint is we deal a lot with capture myopathy in deer. Um, And that is a basically a disease we see that's associated with muscle exertion and stress. And so whenever you're trapping deer, catching deer, um, it can be a pretty significant issue that we deal with. Um, And, you know, deer are just wound so tight that I would love at some point to figure out, would there ever be anything we can do from a, from a handling standpoint to limit some of that capture myopathy? Because it is probably one of the biggest things we face whenever, again, whenever we're trapping deer, collaring, anything like that, um, they just have this high stress physiologic reaction that can actually lead to, to mortality in them. Um, and so I think from a functional standpoint, trying to figure out like what is it in deer that makes them so stressed and that they're wound so tight that, that, that we have this disease that we, we deal with, um, when we handle them. Do you see that in other animals? We do. And you can see it in almost anything. We even had like a woodpecker one time that, uh, that they put a backpack harness on and that got it. So you can see it in almost any species, um, but it tends to be in those that, that are wound really tight, you know, high stress animals. And there's, I just don't think there's anything that's wound as tight as whitetail. <laughs> if you've ever, have you, I don't know if you've ever clover trapped or done anything like that. I mean, they're, they're just wound tight. D- does it happen with predators? Yeah. 
Oh, and your predator species, like when we're handling them. Yeah, like if you're trapping predators, do they get the same thing? Yeah, not nearly as much though. I mean, again, maybe if you had like a long translocation event um, and you had something that was a little bit more high stress, it could happen. I'd have to go back. I mean, it's been reported in almost any species. Like probably the least likely you'd see it in would be something like a black bear that's just <laughs> just more laid back. Yeah. Well, it's something that isn't under, you know, at least when they get to a certain age, isn't under a constant threat of, you know, getting eaten or attacked. Um, exactly. They're pretty confident in, in a lot of their environments unless they mix it up with a grizzly or a bigger black bear. Um, it, it, that's interesting because so I hunted in, in South Africa in like 2007 for when I was at Peterson's bow hunting magazine. And I didn't really understand when they sent me over there, I didn't really understand how the whole hunting thing worked over there. And you know, there, everything's high fence and there's a big animal trade over there and it's, it's a weird deal. Uh, but I was talking to the outfitter about it. Cause I was just fascinated by Impalas. I thought, I thought they were so beautiful and they were so cagey. Like if you, you know, you want to talk about something that would give a whitetail a run for its money, at least where I was, those Impala were no joke as far as what they would tolerate and how they'd react to a shot. And I, I was talking to him about that and he said, they are a nightmare to trap and transplant. And he, he referenced, he, he, he said, you know, like a lot of them don't make it. And I, yeah, I have never heard anybody say that. I mean, you hear about some mortality, you know, post-trapping and mortality and whitetails, but not, not framed up quite the way that you put it. It's interesting. Yeah, it is. And, and, and so uh, the same exact thing, I mean, you know, whenever you're doing a, a translocation or even just handling them and putting a collar on them, you know, you, you take all these different measures to keep them cool because they're going to get a spiking temperature. Um, you know, th their body just physiologically just gets going. So get, gets ramped up. And so um, it's an, it, it's interesting to me. It, it makes sense. I mean, it's a prey species. And so that reaction makes sense to me, but it, it doesn't always, at least as a scientist makes sense that it would be so bad that it could kill them. You know? Yeah. Well, that, yeah, it seems like a weird, a weird reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And so your interest in trying to figure that out, obviously there's the aspect of, you just don't want your test subjects to die or like, you don't want a certain percentage of them to die for you to be able to do your science. But is it also, is there also something along the lines of like, uh, you know, tainted samples or something like that, or you don't know, you know, maybe you're not getting like a true representative sample of that animal as soon as you capture it because it's its body it literally changes when it's trapped um, a little bit of that but i think probably more just the survivability you know like we put collars i mean there's so much interesting wildlife research going on and 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 we get so much data when we do these collaring studies or movement studies and 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 i think the biggest limitation we have for those right now is is capture myopathy and so from a from a health and disease standpoint of our, our research, um, I, I think that that would open up a lot more um, for a lot of these wound up unglets. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. What, one thing I'm always curious about with whitetails or just, you know, game animals specifically uh, is some of them are so adaptable and some of them don't seem to be. Like some of them play well with man, some of them don't. And when you take, like, just as an example, like mule deer, 
you know, you can, you can see videos of mule deer in the suburbs of Denver and in places like that, living in people's backyards. And you can see some of that interaction with, you know, man-made stuff, but it's not, they're, they're generally thought of as a species that's kind of like, likes to be out on its own, doesn't like a lot of interference. And then you take something like a whitetail and they can, they seem to be able to live just about anywhere. Why, why? Like, why, why is a species like that so adaptable to so many different environments and conditions? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I wish I, I knew, I mean, they really are, have just filled every niche, right? I mean, I remember I was out on the Outer Banks of North Carolina and they were, they were there, they're on the beach, you know, I mean, it's just, they've filled every sort of habitat. Um, and so I, I don't exactly know. I mean, I think they can take advantage of a lot from a um, nutrition standpoint. Um, and, and I think all the adaptations that allowed them to live in those sort of edge habitats can work just as well when they're in sort of suburban neighborhoods. Is, is there a, is there like a fecundity or component to it? Like, is there, is there just uh you know, they're, they're good at making new generations of deer. So these adaptations have a chance to take hold. I, th- I think, I mean, I think that's part of it. Um, I think whenever you have a species that, that is doing well reproductively, um, then they're just going to have the baseline tools they need to do well. You know, same thing with, with bears or anything like that, black bears, at least, you know, that if, if they can take advantage of the nutrition in an area, especially if they can, can use a wide range of nutritional resources and they can, they're good at making more of themselves. then I, I think the, the default is that they're going to do well. I guess that's kind of like what you said before with the chicken or the egg thing where, you know, it's like if they're, if they're really capable of adapting, they're going to make more babies you know, it's not, it's not necessarily that they just, they're just blessed to be, to be able to produce a bunch of babies and then adapt all over the place. It actually probably goes the other way more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, when we look at disease, there are certainly some examples where disease by itself can impact a, a species. Certainly if we look at something like white nose syndrome, some of the amphibian fungal diseases, we've got a lot of those examples, but probably more often than not, when we're talking about population level impacts of disease, it's often, again, multifactorial, where there's a species that is already having issues, whether it's not, not enough habitat or, you know, something else, then when disease comes on top of that, that's when we have a real problem. Yeah. Well, is that, is that one of the biggest challenges for, you know, somebody in your line of work? Because, I know, you know, I know dealing with the general hunting population, it's like very easy to try to just boil something down to be like, oh, there's, there's not enough deer. It's because the DNR wanted them killed, or it's, there's not enough deer because of this or that. And, and it really kind of dismisses the amount of environmental variables and the amount of individual animal variables and, and the, the, the really nuanced, pr- like picture of wild game populations. It's, it's pretty dismissive of that. Is that pretty is that, is that a tough one to swallow for you sometimes? It's, it's a challenge, but I think oftentimes, you know, hunters can pick up on some of the issues more than just the general public. 
you know, and, and, and grouse might be the perfect example where, you know, they were, it, it, it took some discussions and showing them showing data and things like that. But I think they understood that habitat and, and not enough, at least in, in the East, not enough young forest habitat was an issue, but the hunters recognized that they were seeing declines at, even in areas where there was good habitat, right? And that's sort of what sparked that whole research was hunters being like, I am hunting in like prime grouse habitat and I'm not seeing the birds like I used to. And so, you know, once if you, the strongest disease research you can do is when you can really bring sort of some of these outdoor uh, men and women into, into the research so that they can recognize that yes, disease is having an impact in addition to some of these other challenges that that species might be facing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to give you an example of that. And I want, I want your take on it because I know you've studied birds a lot. So this, this spring I was uh, turkey hunting down in Southwestern Wisconsin on a really good property. Like it's, this is normally not like a, that difficult of a place to kill a bird. It just isn't. And I went down there uh, early May should have been prime and I know in the winter there were there were quite a few birds wintering around there. There was a pretty good wintering flock, and it should have just been on. And the weather was perfect. Everything couldn't hardly get a gobble. Couldn't you know the trail cameras had been just empty for days. And I was sitting there uh, the first night I got there, the first evening, and you know I mean that that happens with hunting. Sometimes it just sucks, and it's just you know it's beyond me to be able to explain it why. But I was sitting there. And I was texting my buddy and I was like, it feels like I'm hunting in a vacuum. Like I normally when you're turkey hunting in the spring, you just hear this just cacophony of like songbird sounds. And, you know, if you're close to water, there's all kinds of frogs and toads chirping. And it's just usually like a very audio wise, like a very vibrant time to be out there. And it was just dead. And my buddy texted me. He's like, I don't know, maybe avian flu went through there. And I was like, no way but I've never experienced that before. And I, I know you've studied that. Is that, is it crazy to think that's possible? You know, it, uh, we've, we've done this a few, it, it's a real challenge with, with turkeys and flu, because I think anyone that studies it probably assumes that wild turkeys are highly susceptible to these viruses that are coming through. Um, the difference is I don't think they're exposed as much as what we think. Um, and we've done it a few times where we've looked for antibodies. And so basically when you're looking for a virus, you can either look for the virus itself or you can look for antibodies. And all the antibodies tell you is that sometime in that animal's life, they were exposed to it, to that virus, even if they're not infected now. And so we've actually looked for antibodies just to say, has this turkey ever been exposed to a flu virus? And we haven't found any. Um, and, and I think Minnesota actually repeated that after the last high path outbreak. Um, and so I, th I think it's not out of question to say wild turkeys could be impacted. I think it's just uncommon that they would at least under the current situation be exposed, at least based on existing data. Now, if they were exposed and infected, I think this virus probably, if I had to guess, would um, produce a fatal infection and would kill them pretty fast. Hmm. What, what, what about the songbirds? Same thing. The songbirds is a, is a real question. And, and again, just on that Turkey, the one thing I would preface it by is just, 
we've had high path viruses come through and haven't had a lot of wild turkey mortality, sporadic cases, but not a lot. So I think it might be, again, just a, 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 an issue that they're not being exposed at the level that we think. With the songbirds, again, there's been some questions of should we take feeders down, should we not? Um, this virus that's circulating now can cause mortality in a wide diversity of species. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if there are songbirds that it can cause fatal infections in. I think when you're dealing with a virus, you have to say, what's the highest risk? And right now, songbirds, and this could change because these viruses change very quickly. So this could change at any time. But right now, I don't think songbirds are the highest risk for this virus. Right. It's mainly ducks, waterfowl, some scavenging species, raptors. But songbirds are at least the ones that historically visit feeders are probably lower on that list. Now, if it if you were in a situation where you had a poultry flock near you uh, and you were trying to go for zero risk or really low risk, I might take the feeders down. Interesting. So it's it, just an anomaly that it was like I was hunting under a bell jar there for a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you never know. Um, I, I do think one of the challenges we face with disease is just what sometimes the hardest thing to drive home to the public is, is the emotional parts of disease. So when we deal with something like hemorrhagic disease and you see dead animals everywhere, that is something that gets the public worked up. And that would be hunters or the general public because they can see dead things. If we deal with something like CWD, where you might not see sick animals, you may not see dead animals, um, but it's more of an impact on the population level and more slow and smoldering, it's a little harder to drive home that this is an important disease. And so I, oftentimes when we deal with a, an, an, an issue in wildlife, the knee-jerk reaction is to, to grab at the, the short of, sort of the, the shiny thing that's coming through the population now, but it, but it may be multiple things going on. Yeah. Well, uh, let's, let's end on that note. I've got, a, I've got one question for you about deer and disease. We've, we've talked a lot about CWD on, on this podcast. Got, I've got whole episodes coming out d dedicated to it. So other than CWD, is, is there a disease out there in deer that you've run across that makes you a little bit nervous about the future of whitetails? About the future of whitetails? Yeah. Um, is, is there anything you've seen where you're like, I don't know, man, if that one gets out and, and really gets going, it could be trouble? You know, I don't, I don't know if one's going to, there are certainly hemorrhagic disease can cause a lot of mortality, but it, we don't tend to see population level impacts, but that's something I think that's worth continuing to monitor because as, as we see changes in where these midge vectors can go, we see outbreaks more frequently. Um, and so that's just something that even though I don't think it's going to cause declines in whitetail, I think it's something worth monitoring because we can see these outbreaks more often. Um, and even though it doesn't cause that we can tell disease in deer, um, I think one challenge that we're going to have to figure out how to manage is going to be, uh, SARS coronavirus in, in, and COVID-19 in deer. Uh, why do you say that? Because existing data is just showing that, uh, a high prevalence of deer are infected. And so what is the best way to continue to hunt, process your animals and monitor this safely? Okay, and I so think it's going to just be something that just like everything else with the pandemic, 
we're going to have to learn to to adapt our practices a bit. It, it, are you saying that because it, there's the potential for it, de, uh, deer to be a carrier and then you go to butcher your buck and you might pick up a, a fresh case of COVID? You know, I don't know if we're at the level now to say that that's, that is um, how feasible that is, but certainly that in the grand scheme of things would be the thing we're most concerned of. So it's, it's, it's too early. I mean, you can't say that yet, but there's, there's just a general concern that deer seem to be carrying this around and we don't know what it means. Correct. I mean, well, I think the concern is just, you've got this virus that we're all have been dealing with and, and trying to manage for now two years. There are multiple concerns, but one being how are we going to manage it now that we may have this wildlife involvement? Because whenever wildlife is involved in a, a zoonotic disease or a disease of humans, it's a, a control and management's a little harder. Uh, and then two, what? how are we going to manage this in a game in probably one of the most important and popular game species um, as we move into this this hunting season? Yeah. So this is a, this is a really good example of just pure scientific interest. We don't, we, we know this is happening. We don't know what it means. We know it could be bad, could be a, maybe a nothing burger, but we, we really want to figure out. I think what the pandemics taught us is that we have to be adaptable and we have to be ready for things to change. Uh, and we have to take the best precautions we have at the time uh, that the data suggests and, and I think that's what we're going to have to do with this as well. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you, I agree with that as a guy who's sitting here with COVID. Um, Justin, thank you so much uh, for coming on, man. This was really, really interesting. It was great talking to you. So uh, we'll have to ha- have to keep this up. We'll, we'll do it again, but r- really thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you. That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more whitetail goodness. This has been Wired to Hunt and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for more whitetail content, be sure to head on over to themeateater.com slash wired. Again, that's themeateater.com slash wired. And you'll see a pile of new articles each week by Mark, myself, and a whole slew of whitetail addicts. Or you can head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to see our weekly how-to content that we put up. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.